It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Hi, this is Neil Ellingson, editor and co-producer of Preachers on Preaching. Matt is away right now, and he asked if I would introduce this episode, which I was very happy to do because it's with a friend of mine and someone I admire a great deal, Emily McGinley, uh, the founder and pastor of Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodlawn, which is part of the Urban Village family in Chicago, a successful mainline church plant uh, in the Methodist tradition. Emily talks about starting an intentionally LGBTQ people of color welcoming congregation and her own journey from evangelical church to this new mix of faithful, Jesus-loving Christianity with an openness to multiple perspectives and diverse backgrounds. It's a fascinating conversation, and here it is. So when you started um, the Hyde Park Woodlawn setting of Urban Village, did you have in mind, like, this is going to be a theologically and racially, socioeconomically diverse congregation? Like, that's what our goal is? Mm-hmm. Or was it more whoever comes, comes, and it's a diverse community, mm-hmm. so we'll see who's here? Did, yeah. How intentional were you about making what you've got? Yeah, so that was the sketch in my head, um, recognizing that whoever comes will come, Right. Um, when I thought about like the quote unquote mission field that I would be reaching out into and the kind of people that I wanted to create a space for, um, I was pretty intentional about, um, wanting to create, uh, a a faith community that was first, uh, welcoming and hospitable to, uh, LGBTQ, uh, identified queer people of color. Um, then people of color allies, um, and then LGBTQ white people, and then white allies. And the reason for that was, you know, in the area, Hyde Park in in particular, there are several congregations with their little rainbow flags out there um, that are, that code white, so to speak. You know, uh, they, I, I would say all of them would heartily and sincerely welcome people of color into their spaces, um, but the expression of worship by and large um, probably for a majority of African-Americans wouldn't necessarily feel like their faith's home. And then um, there are lots and lots of black churches on the South side, um, but very few that would be explicitly welcoming of same gender loving or queer identifying people. Um, and so the choice then is I check my race at the door or I check my love at the door. Right. And so I wanted to create a space where uh, folks didn't have to make that choice. I mean, we're about half and half black and white. So, you know, and I'm I'm not black. I don't preach like a black preacher, you know, in that, that stereotypical way. Um, so clearly people who want a, a black church experience are not going to experience that at um, UVC Hyde Park Woodlawn. But we do um, privilege a particular way of um, expressing worship. Um, musically? Musically. Uh, we lean uh, contemporary gospel um, the images and the uh, language and the references that we use um, tend to draw from more from, um, uh, if not a black experience, and a, a mixed experience. Um, and uh, 
and kind of our, this is more out of the people then is there's a, a greater culture of um, hospitality. So folks stick around after worship. We have a, a meal um, for, they'll stick around for like an hour, just sitting, talking, hanging out. And, you know, some of that is because of the space that we have. Um, but some of it too, is that uh, that's just kind of how people always talk about how the um, Hyde Park Woodlawn people at our all UVC events are usually the, the last ones there. Um, and so I think that's a, that's really a reflection of, of the community itself. Um, and maybe a hope that I have, but not necessarily something that I could dictate or, or create, um, except by creating a welcoming space for the kind of people. Who, but they like to be together. Right. Exactly. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of it is about the, the references, reference points and the music is a huge part, um, in terms of, uh, trying to create a space that feels welcoming to, um, LGBTQ people of color. Uh, my first parish call. So I, um, when I graduated from seminary, I came on board at uh, McCormick, where I went to seminary and um, served as the director of a Lilly-funded initiative called the Common Ground Project. And um, it was it was sort of a, a rebirth of a project that I had been part of when I was a seminary and that supported Asian American young adults in ministry. And then this, the Common Ground Project had been uh, rewritten to expand it to include um, Native American, African American, Latino, Latina um, young adults who were um, considering ministry early in ministry, that kind of thing. So I directed that for so like um, a couple of years. You know, in sort of like a low key way, it was recruitment, but uh, it didn't really work as well as the seminary would have hoped in that way. But uh, it definitely, folks who have went through the program um, have gone on to like do some pretty, uh, at least so far, um, do some pretty great stuff. Um, so it, uh, it didn't work in re- in terms of recruitment, but it did work in terms of like probably its primary goal, which would be to help um, young adults kind of thoughtfully discern their sense of call in ministry. And um, once they were there, right, and okay. engage kind of the um, intersection of their identity as well as how that sort of shapes their sense of call in a diverse setting. So not just kind of people who are like them theologically, racially, you know, geographically. Um, so. Was that good training for? The multicultural, multiracial yeah, setting. Yeah, it, it you're ended in now. up being um, uh, really helpful in equipping me with some, at least, uh, initial tools for developing um, an inclusive faith community that was particularly seeking to be inclusive, um, theologically, um, racially, um, ethnically, that kind of thing. When when you all started, what did you have? What resources did you have at your disposal? You had you. Mm-hmm. You had a space. Yeah. So. Um, so I, I had the uh, invaluable resource of being part of a multi-site church. So there were already three existing um, urban village locations. And so I had kind of already a built-in team of colleagues that I could um, draw some wisdom from, at least in terms of their experience around planting um, and some of the logistical things that went with that. Um, and of course, funding. So I didn't have to uh, also be raising my salary in a significant um, way um, while also trying to plant, um, which was an incredible kind of mental and time release. Right. Um, I also, uh, initially actually started with, um, a partner. So, uh, we were co-planting. It was me and another gentleman, um, who's African-American, um, for the sake of the podcast, I'm, uh, biracial, I'm, I'm Chinese and white. Uh, so, um, and the vision was that it would be multiracial leadership up front. And so this other person that I was working with um, had been part of Urban Village and 
um, had pastored uh, for a long time um, a large Black Baptist congregation, and then when he came out to the congregation, promptly left, um, was asked to leave and, and left, and um, began work in a PhD program in Chicago. Um, and so, anyway, he uh, became part of was participating at Urban Village, and um, as uh, the leadership were discerning this new site, they approached him about the possibility of co-planting. Um, they felt really good about him. I ended up meeting Christian Kuhn, one of the founding pastors, um, through uh, kind of a, a, a sort of event that we both um, were participating in, and he's really intrigued about my experience um, with multiracial um, faith community building. And so talked with them. Um, they felt really good about me, felt good about this other person. We met. We thought, okay, we could do this. Um, and so uh, for the next seven, eight months, um, he and I were doing this work together, foundational work, but it really wasn't within his gift set. He was um, a little further along in age. Um, he was about 50 at that time and uh, just was not, I mean, church planning is like schlepping and, you know, like chief janitor and chief Starting pastor, from, right? Preacher. Yeah. yeah. Was and, that, so had, he had had success obviously yeah. in a large church setting. Did it just feel like too? Yeah. And he had been, I mean, he had been kind of coddled in his previous um, setting. And I, I, I say that uh, that's sort of his description in a lot of ways. Um, they wanted him to be their senior pastor. And so they did everything to make it possible for him to stay. Um, and so, uh, and so, and also his heart wasn't in it. He came out to do PhD work. And so about three weeks before we launched, um, he resigned. Oh, really? So it was before you started. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so three weeks before you're to launch this new church, your partner resigns. Right. Um, yeah. And so I was certainly not anticipating that. Um, when you say, I mean, I'm intrigued by that notion of, of starting a church and having to do the nitty gritty kind of right? You're doing all the administrative work, I assume. Like, mm -hmm. what does that look like um, in terms of the non-glamorous end of building a congregation? Yeah. I mean, it looks like uh, putting yourself out there a lot to and, and initiating a lot of conversations with people you don't know. So it might be uh, reaching out to a local business owner and saying, hey, uh, we're starting a new faith community. This is actually, okay, so here's an example. Um, went to a, a a local grocery store and said, you know, we're trying to let people know about uh, the fact that we exist. It's about Christmas time. Uh, would it be okay if we brought in sugar cookies and uh, frosting and offered free cookie decorating for your customers, uh, for anyone who wanted to come um, and just let them know that we exist and that we're going to be starting. And so did they say uh, yes? They did. Yeah. Uh, well, one uh, small uh, grocery store said no. Um, and I assured them, you know, we won't be proselytizing. And in fact, we'll provide um, an ingredient list. So that way people can go and buy grocery, you know, what, you're trying to sweeten the deal for them. But um, they were not open to it. But another grocery store um, that actually was bigger and had like multiple locations said, sure, why not? And um, so you and so, you know, having that conversation and then actually, you know, making the cookies, making the frosting, gathering all the stuff, and then trying to sort of flag down customers to come and come make a cookie. It's free. There's no catch, you know, um, and just letting people know some people want to hear about the church and most people don't. Um, and that's fine either way. But um, so as opposed to yeah. just putting myself in the shoes of, sure. of your partner um, or your partner to be, 
as opposed to uh, being in an established church mm-hmm. where you can have a sense of entitlement, right? And mm-hmm. a sense that, well, people just show up. They do. And right. you can take for granted the fact that there is a congregation. And people will respect you. I mean, you know, yeah. think that you have something valuable to share, <laughs> um, which is not necessarily the case when you're at a card table in the back of a grocery store um, with a little sign up. You How know. do you deal with the rejection that you get? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to uh, kind of mentally prepare yourself that that's just kind of what's going to happen. And um, success is measured in a different way. So success is measured by um, how many people maybe you just have a conversation with um, by spreading joy. You know, hey, come make a free sugar cookie. And, you know, um, so you just kind of have to have to recognize that it's going to be hard. Like, you know, if you're one of those people who are, you know, uh, working for PETA, you know, during the summer trying to flag down tourists on Michigan Avenue, um, you know that probably only one out of 30 people is really going to actually stop and even like have any kind of meaningful interaction. I'm thinking of those Mormon kids on their mountain bikes that you see. Yeah. Yeah. So you just kind of like get yourself ready for that. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. My first church was like 30 people when I started mm-hmm. and it wasn't a new church start. It was like a need for resuscitation. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, we had to hustle to mm-hmm. build a congregation and mm-hmm. it took a lot of work. And I think because of that, I've never taken for granted the fact that people will come. Mm-hmm. And as I moved along in my career to more established churches, I noticed that my colleagues uh, in these churches who primarily had only worked in mm. large multi-staff, you know, scare quote, successful churches, mm-hmm. um, like the notion of evangelism in the liberal church is a hard one to begin with, but but the, but the necessity of it escaped them, you know? Like, right. like I, and I think these experiences of really, like either this place won't make it or right. I'm going to be taking risks and risking my own dignity. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely uh, makes me a much more sympathetic uh, colleague to the Apostle Paul because um, yeah. <laughs> he was the ultimate uh, church planner. But I think that, so my, my background is um, I became a Christian at a non-denominational evangelical Bible church when I was 15. And so the sort of foundation of church life and what it meant to be a Christian was shaped by that kind of theology, um, but also the values um, or sort of the call that came out of that theology, which was sort of, you know, you do, I will do anything for the sake of the gospel type of thing. Um, And I know in my own personal experience that um, knowing, knowing Jesus has uh, made me not just a better person, but made me a whole person, uh, made me a more hopeful person um, and has uh, given me a, in many ways, a reason to live. Um, and so I, I, because I didn't grow up in the church, I don't have sort of a kind of culture of Christianity or like, you know, sort of that Protestant mainline type of, uh, waters that I was swimming in, even when I first started out, um, in my faith journey. And so I view the work of outreach as, um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, you know, I'm not really interested in like the turn and burn type of or turn or burn, um, or maybe turn and burn, um, but turn or burn kind of mentality. But um, to let people know that something like this exists and what that actually is about, rather than kind of the caricatures that they might see 
um, in media that you can be, that you can uh, love uh, gay and straight people equally, uh, that you can welcome and create space uh, for the unique gifts that trans people bring to a community, that you can uh, engage in a really uh, deeply courageous and frightening way, um, issues of systemic racism and oppression, um, and that the gospel has something not just to say about it, but that the gospel really kind of hinges on that kind of courage. Um, And so doing outreach is is a way, at, at the very least, to let people know sort of the breadth of Christianity that exists, whether or not they are on board or are interested in getting involved, you know, that's, um, I'd like to say that that's secondary. Do you you feel that the, the passion that you have for the gospel and the necessity of, um, you haven't used the word, but the necessity of evangelism that was in instilled in you, uh, as an adolescent, when you had an experience, which I want to ask you about, Mm -hmm. do you feel if you were to go back in time and and place yourself uh, with who you are today in that kind of church setting. I mean, it sounds like you've held on to parts of that mm-hmm. worldview and, and mm-hmm. aspects of that theology. Mm-hmm. Um, did it feel like an integration of two separate parts of yourself or was it more yeah. an awakening toward, Oh, I'm a Christian and there's this other aspect of being Christian or was it more, mm-hmm. I'm a Christian and I have progressive politics. And I thought those two parts mm-hmm. of myself needed to be Yeah, um, that's a really great question. I think that it was kind of a slow awakening. I mean, I came from, I grew up uh, in a town called Puyallup, Washington, and it was like, at least at the time, a town of 25,000 people. Um, Not very remote, um, but uh, very, very blue collar. Um, So I was not especially, like, in terms of political consciousness, like, really... uh, pretty unaware. And so it was a, it was a gradual awakening, but it it was also an affirmation that like, you know, I, it, my faith didn't have to be transactional when I was engaging people who didn't believe what I believed. And I was maybe serving them in some way, right. Um, Or contributing to their wellness in some way. They didn't have to give me something back by becoming Christians. Right. Um, And so it, it, there was an affirmation to to a, a core sense of something. Maybe even um, a deeper sense of what Jesus wants us to do, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it felt, yeah, it felt more true to what I, I sensed the gospel to be. And, um, and so it was, and it was just also really interesting and inspiring um, for me. Uh, and so as I kind of began to move down this road of social justice and, um, I don't even know if questioning is really the right way to put it, but sort of expanded my understanding of who, what it meant to be a Christian and who could do what in Christianity because of the context that I came from did not affirm women in ministry. Um, uh, it was not, uh, there wasn't, at least at, at that point, there wasn't a whole lot in terms of my faith being shaken. Um, and I think that's one of the gifts of not having grown up in the church is, is I didn't really have any like deep-seated you know, calcified notions of what was okay and what was not okay, because everything was kind of a discovery to me. Um, so it was sort of like, oh, okay, I thought that women could not be pastors, but here I am. Um, when I came back from my year abroad, uh, started going to a church where it was a husband and wife co-pastor. And I was like, oh, I could see how this works. Um, and then ended up going to McCormick Seminary, which uh, at least in, at the time um, was sort of seen as the most theologically progressive seminary in the Presbyterian church. Um, and you know, the like question quote unquote of women in ministry, like didn't exist. Um, 
and then began to think about uh, LGBTQ inclusion and um, that that maybe that didn't really uh, have a significant uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of like maybe that didn't really matter that much you yeah. know um, so it, and as you yeah. got as your sort of aperture broadened right and you and and you matured and grew as a Christian there wasn't a sense then I was talking to Doug Paget a few weeks ago and he said he has a similar background to yours where he went through a conversion experience as a teenager mm-hmm. at an evangelical megachurch and then um, kind of outgrew it, drifted away from it, became something else. And he said when he went through that experience of becoming a, a sort of progressive liberal Christian, it didn't feel, because he hadn't been raised in the church, it didn't feel to him like he was betraying his parents. Right. That yeah, sounds. I hadn't, there was like, I mean, in fact, my parents were kind of, alarmed at how serious I took my faith. They didn't. So what happened yeah. there? You were 15. You, you weren't raised going to church. Right. How? Yeah. I didn't grow up in um, any kind of faith context or container. Um, and I was about 15 and no, I was 15 and I uh, had had a pretty rebellious early adolescence uh, kind of did all the things not all the things, but most of the things people do in college <laughs> when I was 13 and 14, 13 and, um, and had a pretty tough home life. And then kind of got on this kick, like sort of health kick. I decided, you know what, I'm in, I, I can be someone that I want to be. And so I started exercising and eating well and, um, kind of turned toward my kind of spiritual well being. um, and uh, was feeling sort of down one day and wondering why that was because there were so many good things happening in my life and I'd made kind of turned my life around in a way. And I looked over and um, in my parents' home and I saw a Bible um, and it was like my my home should not have had a Bible, but it was kind of like a standard Gideon's issue Bible from, you know, that you would find in a hotel room. I don't know if they still do that, but um, and uh, so if there are any Gideons who are listening to this, the ministry of that. Bible sharing has changed my life. Um, and uh, so I thought, oh, the Bible, it's a um, pretty important book. Uh, felt sort of s- magical was kind of the, probably the language I would have used at the time. Like there was something kind of beyond this world that was involved with it. And I loved reading. So I thought, you know, um, I'll read the Bible. So I started reading the Bible, didn't know, you know, how it was set up. So I just started in the beginning and, and would read five chapters a night um, and started began to pray before I would read it to whoever God was to help me understand what it was that I was reading um, and kept at it for um, through like Deuteronomy and then started going to this church that was just a block away from where I lived. Um, the pastor lived on, on my street. So I was somewhat familiar with him. So you'd go by yourself. Yeah. Um, and I remember my first Sunday there thinking like, I really don't belong because it was all white it was all families, nuclear families um, together. And it was just kind of me and my jeans and my sweatshirt. Um, but, you know, I thought, you know, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to like learn about this book because people, you know, the thing that prompted me was that, you know, everyone gathers on Sunday morning to hear about this book. So maybe I should go check that out. And so I started taking all these notes because they were always talking about the end of the book. And I was still like, stuck at the beginning and down and right, numbers and yeah so um i uh was like taking all these notes about ephesians galatians whatever and when i get there you know i'll you know hoping that i wouldn't get a spoiler right um because again i didn't know how it was set up so i started going and um, was really faithfully involved there and um had uh 
the youth pastor there reached out to me and asked me to meet up because um, I had uh, checked off on the the little kind of sheet that was in the um, um, bulletin that I was interested in baptism. And finally, the youth pastor reached out and asked me if I wanted to meet up. And he said, you know, so I understand you want to be baptized. And I was, you know, I, was, <laughs> I didn't really know how it worked. And I was like, wow, how does he know that? Um, but I said, yeah. Uh, and so he's, you know, he kind of started talking to me about Jesus. And um, he asked me, you know, do you, would you like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, you know, in my, I, I it felt like a really big question. And I thought, you know, I did not, I just wanted to get baptized. So I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that. And he said, well, you know, you can't get baptized unless you you know, make that agreement. And I said, well, you know, let me think about this then. So he, he said, okay. And he pulled out a, a pamphlet that is uh, the four spiritual laws. I don't know if you're familiar with it. So uh, it's a, it's an evangelism tract essentially. And the first law is um, that God uh, created creation, wants to be in relationship with creation. The second law is that um, uh, humans messed it up, that we're broken people and that we broke that relationship uh, the third law is that Jesus came to repair that relationship and bridge the gap. And then the fourth law is that we too can be in relationship with God if we would accept Jesus um, as the kind of reconciler of that relationship. And so uh, number one and number two made sense, um, but I did not understand number three about how Jesus could be make that better, right? Um, so the math didn't really like make sense to me, so I didn't re- really quite know what to do with that. Uh, a few months go by, and I had been involved with the children's ministry. And so the children's ministry director asked me if I want, could meet up with her after church. And so I said, okay. And then she started telling me this stuff about Jesus again. And I thought, oh, she's going to ask me the question. So, you know, she's telling me the, the things about uh, Jesus. And, uh, and then she asked me the question. And I, she said, so she said, do, you know, would you like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. And nothing had really changed, actually, from the first question to the second question. But uh, what I realized was, um, I don't know what these people have, but they have something that I want. They had joy. They had hope. They had a sense of kind of um, how the world should be. And coming from a pretty dysfunctional household, that just was really attractive to me. And I felt like, okay, I don't get it, but I want it. Mm. So um, that's why I said yes. So you're going to just leap. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I was baptized. So I <laughs> finally was able to to get that end goal met. Um, but uh, certainly um, continued to grow in my understanding and faith um, in the years that followed. When you think about who you are now as a pastor and who you're pastoring to and the kind of church that you're in, and you go back to those four spiritual laws, have you held on to them? I suppose in a basic way, um, I was talking with um, my husband about about the fall, quote unquote, like so to speak, and uh, having a, a really interesting conversation with him about that and whether or not we believed it in the way that uh, it's often narrated that um, um, that that we messed it up um, and that was the problem. Um, and in the course of our conversation, kind of for myself at least, kind of came to a realization that the mess up wasn't necessarily um, the bad decision, but the mess up was the unwillingness to stay in relationship. And um, 
So the bad decision is sort of an expression of that underlying unwillingness? Well, the, the, the bad decision is an expression of God's decision to give us the opportunity to make decisions that are good or bad or whatever, right? But the freedom to do that. Um, the bad decision was to choose uh, choose shame and anxiety over reconciliation and renewal. Um, and that's a really... So to your question... Um, I don't think that uh, we messed up and therefore we need Jesus, um, but that we messed up and we don't know how to make it right in terms of overcoming our own shame and anxiety. It's really, really hard. I mean, it's hard enough in marriage. Um, how much harder is that with God? And so the way that I've come to sort of understand number two and number three is that um, is that we don't know how to make our way back to God um, very well. And, and, uh, we try to make all these other pathways to compensate. Um, and Jesus came to help us understand how to do that better. Um, how to keep reaching out, even when people reject you, how to stay in relationship, even when it's really hard and you don't want to stay, um, what it means to have, um, fidelity and commitment to someone, even when from time to time you don't, uh, behave in ways that reflect fidelity, right? Um, but choosing to come back and stay committed. Um, so it's it's different than the narrative that I was uh, uh, told in my evangelical spaces, but it's not completely divergent. That's great. One of the things I've noticed in intentionally seeking out conversation with people like yourself who are having this transformational impact within the mainline right? Starting new churches that are attracting people that are booming, you know, and, and like great things are happening. One of the things I've noticed is that there is this stream that I've seen at least of lifeblood pouring into the, you know, cratering mainline from people like yourself who have come out of evangelicalism mm. and into the mainline. And simultaneously, I've noticed myself and other colleagues of mine who grew up in the liberal church hitting a sort of point of frustration with liberal Protestant theology and becoming more theologically orthodox. Mm. That's happened Mm. to me over the course of my life. Um, And one of the things that intrigues me is sometimes it seems like people who come out of evangelicalism into the mainline, even as they feel a sense of liberation and delight and challenge in seeing this other form of being Christian, that as over against what, people sometimes experience as the, the the very blinkered and rigid limits of evangelicalism. Mm. Um, so there's this sort of a glorious awakening that people go through at the exact same time, their Christology just goes mm. way, way low. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'm sort of intrigued by just conceptually is, is that always the case, right? Um, as a person moves into the progressive church from evangelicalism, does a sense of Jesus have to be diminished um, or, um, so mm-hmm. that, that's, that's kind of what I'm... Yeah, um, I think that, so I sort of, I, I, you know, I moved from evangelicalism into a more mainline critical engagement of scripture that, and critical engagement sort of with uh, what my evangelical friends would, would call the powers and principalities of this world, right? Um, and in the course of that shift into the critical thinking and the mainline space, there was a, a an, exactly as you described, a, a kind of an intellectual awakening and 
uh, liberation of um, possibility, but then also um, a, a, a loss of, I think the biggest thing was personal uh, um, sense of urgency and engagement and call to courage uh, that I think uh, the evangelical church often taps into sometimes in abusive ways. But um, so when I came, actually when I came to urban village, it was just this wonderful marriage of both sides of my faith that I hadn't quite figured out at that point, you know, just at the end of seminary, how to merge and how they could live together um, in ways. Cause there weren't a lot of models that I had um, observed that, brought those two things together. They both just sort of seemed to be at war in a similar way that sort of like conservatives and liberals are at war. Right. And so um, what I've loved about being at um, urban village and my ministry there is that I can pull from both places and they don't, and they don't uh, always agree, um, but there's space for them to, uh, to kind of duke it out a little bit. And And there's not a pre-established context in which, um, right. So I'm not also. What the hell like, is she saying? That's not what we've been hearing for the past 70 right, years here. Right. You get to create your, when you create your congregation or your, your uh, faith space for folks, you also create the, help to create the culture. And so um, at, at my site in particular, um, it's especially uh, diverse um, in a lot of different ways. We've got folks who come from Pentecostal, charismatic type backgrounds to Catholics to uh, mainline Protestants and non-denominational evangelicals, a uh, few folks who I think would probably um, at best be agnostic. Um, and I'm like pretty explicitly Jesus-y in my sermons, but I also um, try to acknowledge the uh, the sort of mystery of, of we don't really know, but this is what, this is what scripture, uh, or this is what the context shows us. This is what you know, my reading and and reflecting um, both on scripture and the world that we live in and the conversations that I'm having with congregants, um, this is what I'm seeing come out. And let's talk about that. Um, and it's okay to, it's okay if you don't agree with me. Um, there have been a, and there have been a couple of times um, when it has been appropriate in a sermon where I might have said um, something like, you know, lots of people have interpreted this passage in different ways because we all know that there are different ways that people that this same passage can be interpreted, right? Um, and then people, you know, like I kind of have to prompt a, a right from people um, so that way everyone can kind of get comfortable with feeling, especially those who come from a church tradition where what pastor said was true, you know, the right interpretation. And I want to free them from that to be able to say, no, you know, the spirit is at work within you as well. Um, and and so let's wrestle with all the different interpretations and lenses that we bring to maybe get a truer re- reflection of, of who God is and, and how God is in this world. Several of your sermons that I listened to, it seemed like you were very intentional about not just weaving, but incorporating, inviting other voices into the pulpit with you. Mm-hmm. So one sermon, it was co-preached with you and a parishioner, mm-hmm. and it was the sermon uh, about the story of Hannah um, oh, yeah. and her wanting to have a child. Yeah. Um, when you do that, um, what's the, why are you doing that? Um, sure, that's right. So the the co-preaching one um, came out because came out of a an email conversation I had with a parishioner who's a teacher with Chicago Public Schools, and so it was actually an email that she sent to several people saying why she had voted to strike. 
Um, and I knew that we were doing this sermon series on vocation and uh, in a month or so. And so I wrote her back and I said, would you be open to um, joining me in a sermon, um, you know, in this sermon series? And she said, she was sort of like, okay, didn't quite know what that meant, you know? And so we, as I, I worked it out with her, um, you know, I, I kind of essentially said, let's do it t- sort of testimonial style, right? Um, and uh, And then for the... The one about Hannah's prayer, um, it just made me think about, I have folks who struggle with infertility um, in my congregation, and I thought, you know, how many sermons ever speak to that reality? And and the topic, or the series was about prayer, and the topic for that day was, you know, waiting when, when you're in prayer and not knowing if God hears you or, you know, if anything is going to happen. And so I thought, this is this is an opportunity to lift up. So I had um, uh, someone in my congregation who's been uh, freely shared about their um, infertility struggle, um, and she had written a blog post. So I invited her to um, speak, to read, essentially read her blog post, kind of interspersed throughout the sermon as well. In both of those instances, as a listener, mm-hmm. that it's funny. When I write my sermons, you know, it's time for an illustration, right? Mm-hmm. So I mind my own life, and that becomes boring after a while. And you know, <laughs> I've told every interesting story I have to tell, and then you go searching for other things. And sometimes that's fun, and sometimes it feels laborious, and sometimes mm-hmm. I don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. In both of those sermons, the examples that the women were offering up, and that t- just their voice, it mm-hmm. was so raw and so real. And we're talking about, you know, deep real pain in both instances and hope and promise too. But even the sort of the quavering in their voices, I mean, it was intense in a way that I think a week in, week out, writing a sermon preacher can't gin up every time, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. it just made me think like, it must have been riveting in the moment Mm -hmm. to hear people speaking in the pulpit out, not like I need to find a story to illustrate this larger point, but rather here's the shit that I'm in and I'm talking about it right now. Um, how did that feel to you as the sort of like more at some level, right? The clinician in the midst, right? You know what I mean? It's something you do all the time. Uh, And it's their one shot. How was that? (laughs) Um, It's beautiful. I, I mean, so we have a practice of telling testimony, sharing testimony during our service. So there is a little bit of um, a culture of um, familiarity with that um, for both the, the people who, shared and the people who were in the space. Um, so there's already kind of a um, existing sense of safe, somewhat safety around that. And both those people are people who have been around for a while. So they were comfortable with sharing um, in those particularly in that, those vulnerable ways. Um, but for me, like it makes me feel really proud as a, as their pastor, because I think, you know, here are people who are, who are doing the work to dig in deep and try to, wrestle with the hard questions of life and faith um, that they still, even though they can articulate them really well, don't quite have the answer. Right. Um, And that just, yeah, that makes me feel really proud and excited. Um, So I welcome the opportunity for folks to share their stories because um, as a preacher or as a, and as a pastor, I should say as a preacher who is a pastor because not everyone who preaches is a pastor um and i that's not a knock it's like some people just travel around and preach right um that's what i mean by that um but as a preacher who is also pastoring the those people um 
it's really exciting to me because that's like a community where people can uh, can share sort of the view from their backyard, sort of um, from, from their spiritual backyard, uh, is is I think where we begin to help people uh, feel provide models for people of how you can be community and what it means to be real and vulnerable with one another um, as you struggle to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live a life of faith. Just the story of the teacher um, sharing, and my kids are in CPS. I mean, I know the travails, but um, when she was just describing the size of her classroom, the number of kids with IEPs, the, the, the way she feels in the morning on her way in. Um, yeah, that was, um, it made me think I need to do a better job of tapping into my congregation's lived experience. Um, because I would imagine then it, it felt like that for me listening to her preach that, um, it makes me understand my own work better, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. The, that notion, I mean, preaching, I think at its best can be really, really, um, electrifying and arresting but the flip side of that coin is it it can become just a sort of bravura performance Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. which yeah isn't the aim right and i i would say like the thing that has really pushed me around preaching particularly in this um such a diverse context is that um folks are coming from very different preaching traditions experiences of different preaching traditions so you know the lutheran uh or the uh and I'm not lumping them together, but the Lutheran or the Catholic person um, may be used to like a 15 minute sermon. Whereas the person from, you know, God's vessel of us, you know, assemblies of God um, is used to like a 45 minute sermon. Right. And one is very um, highly intellectual, uh, you know, rigorous. Didactic sometimes. Right. And then, uh, and then another one is very emotional and expressive and inspiring, um, and so it's really pushed me to, uh, to kind of not necessarily meet all those needs, right. Or experiences, but to expand my, uh, preaching vocabulary, so to speak. Um, so, and you kind of add that to people who, you know, a congregation where some folks, uh, are, are grateful to have, have passed their GED exam. And then other people who are like PhD students at the University of Chicago, right? And um, how do I sort of feed my sheep, right? Uh, both food that is nourishing, but also food that is um, like digestible, right? Because um, I, I, and I would favor my, my GEDers over my PhDers because, um, because my PhDers can, can go anywhere um, for good food, but not necessarily my GEDers, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. So if I can take uh, my exegetical work and um, translate it in a way that is both uh, scripturally responsible, but also accessible and uh, liberating and life-giving and loving to my um, to everyone across the spectrum, um, mostly done my job <laughs> yeah. in terms of preaching. Oh, I think absolutely in a setting like that, if, if the only folks who are being fed by the sermon are the intellectuals, right. something's not working. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, you're feeding the elite. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think at least in my experience and as a Presbyterian, I'm sure this resonates. Um, we prioritize right. and privilege, right? Mm-hmm. The abstract, the intellectual. Well, and we're trained that way. Yeah, I mean, exactly. we have four ordination exams that, 
shape your mind in that way um, in the PCUSA um, for that kind of preaching. Which can then make you think that that is more, the most Superior. valuable. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, Emily, thank you so much for this good conversation yeah, today. Thank you Much appreciated. Me. Yeah. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.